Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm live here in Las Vegas in the Solve for Why headquarters with Matt Berkey, Solve for Why founder, G2O lover and hater, and player of some of the highest stakes cash games in the world. Matt is also constantly making training videos and content for Solve for Why to break down his own approach to the game and hands versus top players in most bleed cash games with a focus on psychology as well as math. He has over 4 million in live earnings and summer is just getting started. Hey Matt, thanks so much for joining me to talk about a hand that a lot of people didn't think I'd be able to get on the grid. The queen five offsuit against <laughs> Jungle Man. So set it up for us. When and where did the hand take place? Okay, so this hand happened on Poker After Dark in, I wanna say it was like October, 2017. Uh, so it was like very first year that they had brought back Poker After Dark. They did Rumble in the Jungle Week. And this was day two, I believe, uh, of that three-day stretch. It was an interesting session. Earlier in the same session, I had accidentally bluffed jungle in like a 300K pot where I check-shoved ace-jack on, uh, I think it was like a 10-5-4 jack board, blind versus blind, and he folded kings. So we had a bit of a dynamic, to say the least. Um, this hand came up, we were playing 3-6-12 at the time. I was the 1200 straddle. Jungle had opened, I think, to 3K under the gun. Rast, who, uh, we were playing six-handed also, so that's probably worth noting. Rast, who was sitting on like 80K, less than 100 big blinds, chooses to flat from the cutoff with two tens. And I'm in the straddle with queen five off. Pretty loose defend, disrespectful at the least to my man Jungle and uh rest short stack i think it's worth like having a little context here right we evolved through our understanding of the game so rapidly that we just take for granted that shit that we know today we knew two and a half years ago but like you know big blind defense was really just like at peak examination at that point point. and what we understood is that like there was a big incentive to start defending a lot more and i was always just one who erred on the side of way too loose rather than way too cautious. So for me, it was just like, I have a paint card. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and call and see if I can realize some equity here. Were there any hands that you wouldn't call there? I think like my delineation is seven gappers and beyond. So like once we start getting a deuce involved, uh, I stopped calling. Uh, I probably don't have very much like queen deuce, jack deuce, 10 deuce, nine deuce off type holdings. And you know, same thing with like the three X, four X. It depends. The, the, the closer they are in nature, the more likely I am to, to kind of flick it in. It's interesting because I was going to ask you a little bit about language and solve for why is you guys like to come up with new terms for poker concepts and seven gapper. 
<laughs> you know, they're not very playable, to be quite frank. But you got the queen five off. And I mean, I understand that you're erring on the side of playing more hands. I mean, that also probably is something that gets you a lot of invites to these games. They know you're going to get in there. So there's value in that if you think it's even remotely close, right? Here's a maxim that I absolutely abide by. And I don't understand when we lost sight of this. But if you're good at this game and you are sucking EV out of every time, like when you take a seat, you are lowering the EV of others around you. It's incredibly critical to mask that. But somewhere along the lines, we just, as a community, kind of like stopped hiding the fact that uh, we are winning money or whatever the case may be. and started just like brashly pointing out how all the ways that other people are losing money. And I just abide by like, in order to get action, you have to give action. If I'm making a lot of money in a big game, say my hourly is something like five big blinds, I think it's quite reasonable to make loose plays that sacrifice a half a blind here and there in order to keep people happy, keep people gambling, and more importantly, like keep my ass in that seat, right? So it's like, if I'm able to kind of broadcast that I'm too loose from the big blind, that's great. And like, sure, it's hard. And as we see in this hand, I'm going to put myself in remarkably difficult spots. But that's what I'm paid to do. And I think it's completely reasonable to just like venture off into parts of the game tree that are unknown and just like see who has the best wits about them at that point. Especially when you're playing against really weak players like Rast and Dungleman. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> these guys, what do they know? I mean, honestly. But something very interesting happened at this point where um, Rast, um, after Jungle made it 3K, Rast just flatted, right? Yeah. I, I'm still really unsure of like why i think his hand qualifies pretty clearly as if you're going to short stack this game which you know eighty thousand dollars means something to everybody and i'm very certain rast of all people is playing with a bigger piece of himself than most maybe that had something to do with the decision maybe uh that was his last bullet and he didn't plan on reloading so he didn't really think getting tens in versus jungle is a great spot which as we know now probably wasn't there since he had kings uh, i'm not really sure i just think if we like break down the simple theory of it all like tens probably should fit into a three bet range whenever you have 70 blinds or 60 blinds whatever you had well do you think that because you talk about spidey senses sometimes in your videos and um, do you think it's possible that rats picked up on something about jungle or first let's let's also be very clear rast is very much a thinking player but he's also very much an innovator of his own i don't really think that he's sitting at home putting in thousands of hours on assault like i think he thinks about the game in a very big picture sense so he's probably is paying a lot more attention to the anecdotal nature of things and you know how jungle's raising and the, the live element there's a lot of information to accumulate whenever you're able to look somebody in the face that's why this whole new concept of clairvoyance is kind of catching wave and really all it speaks to is that whenever you're afforded more information of being able to see the person profile the person understand their tendencies etc their strategies become a little bit more transparent and you're able to deviate off of baseline gto a little bit easier so i do think it's reasonable that at the time we all perceived jungle to be tight and ras just thought like if i three bet and have to get it in here i'm probably not doing great so my hand might just perform better as a call totally yeah and i guess we will never really know exactly um whether he picked up on some kind of live read as well but uh you mentioned 300 600 1200 and rast only had like 70k behind right mm -hmm. did he know going into this game that there was going to be the straddle is that just kind of obvious like you're invited to a 300 600 game and then everybody just agrees at the beginning of the game that there'll be a straddle or does it happen in pre-production this was late in the in the session okay uh so we added the 1200 probably like two thirds of the way through. And it's just one of those things where like, if he didn't want to do it, he could have said no. And we just wouldn't have done it. I guess I didn't expect there to be a straddle personally. I think that we all recognize that it was a semi-tough lineup, but 
there's a lot of ego there and there's a lot of each one of us thinking that we have some sort of edge over the other. Also, certain people get stuck and it's easier to come from behind whenever the stakes get larger and the stack sizes or the SPRs begin to shrink. If you don't have much of an edge, it's a lot easier to realize whatever little bit you have if you're just constantly all in. I think Jungle and I were uh, about 200,000 effective. So we're still relatively deep and the pot has about 10,000 in it. Uh, so yeah, Queen 7-9, relatively neutral-ish type texture when you're talking about a multi-way scenario. Jungle Man's gonna have a lot of overcards that miss here that may feel inclined to C-bet. But honestly, like, I just kind of understood at the time that this interacts with Rast range the most, I believe. So I was a little bit dismissive of whatever choice Jungle Man made, where I shouldn't have been. I should have been understanding that, like, he's probably pretty conscientious of this board texture as well and isn't just gonna be freely C-betting. And that decreases the value of my top pair. But having that as a blocker and reducing the top sets and uh, queen X with better kickers, etc., is is relatively important. Rast chooses to just call. And though I understand that like Rast range interacts greatly with this, I have a queen. So like now I think he's really weighted to like the marginal holdings, the jack tens, the, the nine ten suiteds, the ace nines pocket tens i guess sure he could have nines and he could have sevens but he's also just gonna have a litany of other hands that are gonna have equity here king jack just depends like how wide he's fighting pre i suppose so that just led me to deciding to check raise i i was just like happy to play an all-in pot versus rast which again looking back on it probably a mistake pretty clearly a mistake actually if it does go fold shove i'm not doing well there I'm either going to be behind better top pairs or run into sets. He's just not all that incentivized to just be all in with a hand like Jack-10. So the flop was Queen-7-9 rainbow, jungle C-bet 5k, and you check raise to 25k. What do you think the best hands are that you could get jungle to fold? Because you, what I really liked about this hand is that I think uh, so many people are hungry to get better at multi-way pots because it's not something you can really study as well with a solver or at home. And you delineated like your bluffing versus jungle. You're actually getting him to fold better. What do you think is the best hand he might fold here to this check raise? The problem is, is that it's it's difficult to to understand like how he was constructing his seabed at the time. I can make a good estimate as to how he would see bet now and i don't know how accurate that would be to 2017 jungle but i think he's in like a really tricky spot with a hand like queen jack where he's blocking my natural bluffs uh if he runs into two pair plus here he's in really awful shape it seems like i should have a pretty low frequency check raise squeeze range here i don't really think he can expect to run into like too many hands like king 10 but even whenever he does his clarity upon improving is like pretty poor so i think like you know top of range folds would probably be like a hand like queen jack some frequency and then just applying a lot of pressure like i said like denying the equity of jack 10 where he's just in a hell spot like he may feel inclined to always continue with jack 10 here i, I don't really know but rast is going to be back shoving at some frequency and that's just going to kind of put him in a I don't want to say reverse implied odd spot because if Rash shoves and I fold and then he just has a clear call, like he's getting the right price to do so. But it's really complicated anytime Rash shove and I continue. Jungle calls, Rast folds. Now I understand jungle is pretty high up in showdown value, most likely. I have a lot of give ups. If the turn is like an ace, a king, even a deuce or a three, I pretty much have to shut down here and just like maybe bluff catch or just expect it to go check check a lot because his range is still pretty vulnerable. But instead it was a six, which is a very interesting card. Yeah, six seems like gin. 
so you know a lot of my semi bluffs here are going to be hands like nine ten uh are, are going to be hands like eight ten for an open ender i i will have some eight six as well but i think that eight six kind of poses a problem if we choose to check raise it because it blocks nothing and i think when you're trying to construct this check raise range especially against two opponents you don't want them to be completely free and clear uh to have all of their equity available and we also don't like unblock any of their auto folds so like now we're blocking eights we're blocking sixes uh which may or may not have continued on flop we're also blocking them from having eight six and like you know we're not really putting pressure on anything we're just letting them continue freely i feel like you could also sometimes have like the backed into the bottom two pair type thing you could have yeah seven six seven nine, six, six, seven, six with the backdoor flush draw would be like a pretty good candidate you know we are blocking bottom set which is pretty critical i think i would be choosing like a lot more nine x than seven x but you know i have queen five so like <laughs> i'm gonna have a lot of hands that have coverage on this texture and the six is definitely more favorable for me than jungle so if we're just like stripping this down getting out of the gto mindset and just like saying like hey we're playing street ball here like what does this all boil down to it's like well that six is me and he's gonna have a tougher time continuing i remember in game thinking to myself like okay advantage is shifting my way this pot's getting inflated but i don't have the best hand how am i going to construct the rest of this line work because my instincts are screaming to check like the six is good for me but like the hand i'm against very bad i think the pot at this point was like something in the neighborhood of like 60k yeah 60k yeah. and i remember like choosing a half pot bet which at the time for me was was on the smaller side of things like now we operate on a scale from you know third pot to half pot being pretty standard and then like half pot to over bet being like another subsection of available choices so jungle did call yeah and then the river was an eight so now you have a straight and at this point you were thinking about betting you're thinking about checking you're thinking about making a small bet or checking right mm -hmm. those are yeah. like your two options yeah, yeah. And now he's like absolute worst holding i think is ace queen which i'm trying to like juggle in my head of like okay does that hand serve him better to bluff with or to bluff catch with I ultimately just arrive at the fact that if I check, I'm just doing myself a bigger service because he may feel inclined to bet a hand like 9-8. If I bet, he may just begin to start folding a lot of the hands that bluff catch. You you thought that he might bluff with king-queen if you checked to him. I wasn't sure, but what I realized was like on the end, neither of us have bluffs any longer. And so like we, we kind of have like this symmetry in our range where like our worst holdings are pretty strong hands in a general classification sense, but not really on this board texture. So it's like, I don't know what he's going to do with like king-queen, ace-queen, kings, aces, etc. But I have a strong inclination that he's not going to call with them if I bet. And I don't know what he's going to do with like two pair plus but i have a strong inclination that if i check he may seek thin value with those types of hands where it may be like more difficult from the call so ultimately what i'm juggling between here is just a small bet and a check and the ev differential between the two are probably pretty negligible but the problem set doesn't end there and that was what ultimately arrived me to my decision i need to know how to operate then when facing a raise if i choose to bet if i bet 30 percent here and he shoves i just don't know if I'm supposed to call. I mean, I'm kind of at top of range, but I'm not at top of range, but like I'm not at bottom of range and like I have a really good hand, but I just like lose pretty easily to any 10X. And I don't know if he's gonna turn pairs into bluffs facing a small bet, but I do know he's gonna shove a 10 because why wouldn't he? he? He effectively has nuts. So you ended up checking the river and then jungle bet 
pretty large. Yeah. And we, we've mentioned his hand kings before, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, at this point, you thought for a while. Mm-hmm. It's unfair that I tanked as long as I did. I just have a habit of doing this because I think it's it's beneficial. You know, Jungle and I played a 15-minute hand earlier in the session where I didn't know it at the time, but I was bluffing him with top pair. And I saw that hand. That yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> so Jungle chose to bet large. I think he bet like 110 into 90, something along those lines. But no matter what, we understand what the outcome of this is going to be. So I can just snap call and whatever the result is, it is. Or I can get my money's worth, spend five minutes to analyze him under a high pressure situation and then ultimately know what the result is whenever the cards are table. And it just seemed like a big waste of EV for me not to take that time, kind of like talk him through it a little bit and just like see what his reactions are because they're going to be genuine. And I'm going to be able to utilize that in my favor moving forward in some capacity. So what was Jungle's reaction after you table queen five off and his kings get um, destroyed for the second time in the session in a a very, very different way than the first time? He was actually like really great about it. Like if that hand happened today, he would definitely look at me and be like, what the fuck are you doing? But in the moment, I think he was kind of just like, oh, like, of course you have a random five. Like, why wouldn't you just have a random five in your range? And I think, like, he also just was only analyzing through his own eyes a little bit of, like, was Kings even, like, the proper hand that I should be choosing to bluff with because it doesn't really block me from having value type stuff. And I think what's, like, running through his head is, like, do I put enough pressure on two pair here to ever get it to fold? You should have a queen in his hand to bluff with to block, like, your queen six off, your queen seven off. (laughs) Yeah, I think, like, nine eight is probably one of my most common hands to have on river at this point that it's close between a call and a fold. If he has nine, eight, if he has eight, seven, do I apply enough pressure here with my now one pair, which is worse in order to get him to make a huge hero fold, which I don't think I would have folded them. You've played a lot of memorable hands against jungle. Do you have, um, have you run well against him or is it just like the fact that some of these very memorable hands you won? It's a lot more of the latter. I mean, this hand is exemplified of running good. Uh, the ace jack hand is, I think, like just him leveling himself a little bit. And then, you know, we played a couple hands on live at the bike where I was out on a limb <laughs> in a couple scenarios, but the game flow being what it was and him being seven Long Islands deep, I felt like I could take a few liberties in that scenario. <laughs> so after listening to this podcast, should we be thinking of other situations where you can play queen five off? I mean, besides defending your blind, what's like another example of a time where you can imagine that you would V-pip this hand or play this yeah. hand. I actually would probably V-pip this a lot less from the big blind now. I would tighten those defense ranges up a little bit. You're just giving up a lot of realization when you're out of position. I do think that like when you find situations where the blinds are too passive, uh, your left is relatively soft, this becomes like a hand that, you know, it's a stretch, but it's it's one that like if you wanted to work it into a button opening range, particularly in tournaments where your decisions aren't necessarily so driven by chip EV, they're a lot more driven by the spot themselves. If you just simply have a small blind and a big blind that aren't ever three betting and aren't defending wide enough or just often like letting you steal and take it, queen fives is as good as any other hand to just start working in. One of the reasons I'm fascinated by this hand is of course, you know, it's very difficult for people to come up with such a, a deep, interesting hand with queen five off. So in order to fill out the grid, I need stuff like that. <laughs> is there a danger um, of having rigid preflop ranges or using a color coded chart to determine ranges like people do so often now, um, you know, using preflop solves or just using charts that they've gotten from various training programs and in your own coaching practice how do you coach students out of this rigidity i think there's a danger in what it does to your learning process from there on out obviously these charts are what they are because they make money or at least theoretically 
they put you in a position to not lose money. But the issue is that once you start relying on a crutch from your entry level point, you look for said crutches on every then decision point thereafter. And they don't exist, right? There's no chart of hands that say these are the qualifying hands that you should continue with on flop texture A through infinite. And there are a lot of textures, a lot of textures, too many textures for anybody to really just like study one through the thousands. I would beg to differ in super high rollers. Like I would imagine there are people who just have like big databases of flop textures where they're studying what to do in every single one. Totally agree. But I think that I would find it hard to believe that they actually study every single one individually. They probably group them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes logical sense. But you're not doing that if you're not constructing preflop that way. So I think like you can start constructing preflop from buckets. And that's what we actually teach is rather than looking at a chart, developing hand classes. So understanding that pairs fall into a hand class, suited connectors fall into a hand class, uh, suited aces fall into a hand class, broadways fall into a hand class, right? And then just understanding like how the EVs run from top to bottom in each of these classes and how you should begin to select position by position, spot by spot, and realizing that like you should be dynamic in nature because at the end of the day, GTO, it's a fantastic holy grail that we'll continue to pursue until the end of this game because should it be realized, the game does end. And I think that's an important distinction to recognize. If we all began to operate at theory optimal, then zero sum is achieved and poker no longer exists, right? Unless like some other variant comes up where it's stripped back to exploitative. Though we're all in the pursuit of perfection, we're still operating inside of exploits and some are much more vast than others. So the more exploitative your environment, the more incentivized you're going to be to VPIP more from positions that the chart tell you not to. To give up a little bit of, of that positional disadvantage in order to play pots against bad players. That's pretty critical to the money-making process. And so you actually don't have a hand chart at Solve for Why. That's that, I think that is very unique. Asking for a hand chart, while it can be very valuable for players who are already kind of instinctively want to think for their own, for somebody who does want a crutch, it can be just a more advanced version of how do you play Ace-King. And... I think that that's a trap a lot of people fall into. And I use most of my athletic background to kind of like formulate this process because for me personally, like the pursuit of becoming a professional athlete whenever I'm ill-equipped talent-wise to do so was a frustrating one. You're just picking every single piece of low-hanging fruit thinking that that's going to be the next elixir that's going to take you to the next level, right? So it's like how to throw five miles an hour faster, uh, pick up these weighted balls. And so you spend 20 bucks and you start chucking around a weighted ball and you never figure out the science behind it or why this is actually damaging you rather than improving you. And you go through this rinse and repeat cycle over and over and over again, where you just keep falling into the trap of the next snake oil salesman and the next guy who's offering you a simple solution or a band-aid to a very complex nuanced problem. And poker is the epitome of that. There is no simple path to profit in this game. You absolutely have to learn it from cover to cover and you have to be able to think on your feet and problem solve in a dynamic nature where you recognize that the environment is often going to dictate how close your decisions become. You mentioned in an interview with Lee Davey that people want to go to a coach, show them a hand history and get a gold star, which yeah. I thought was a, a good way to put it. That's kind of how we're brought up in education too, right? We're rewarded with grades. We're rewarded with pat on the back and uh, our ability to take tests. And the ultimate test here is showing up to a casino, sitting down in the five seat and being able to extract money from your environment, right? On top of that, there's a massive negative feedback that comes in the wave of variance where we're unable to objectively identify, am I playing well and just getting unlucky or am I playing poorly? and making negative EV decisions. Ultimately, what they do then whenever they can't objectively identify that in game is they turn to somebody else and they say, tell me I'm good, please. 
And, you know, if you want to continue to make money as a coach, your incentive is to just be like, yeah, man, you, you're good. You have some things to work on. But, like, you know, just keep showing up every week and we'll get there. You know, it's bullshit. A lot of my skills are non-transferable to my students. I learn the game in a different way than them. I think differently than them. I see things differently than them. I pick up on nuances differently than them. But that doesn't mean there aren't principles that guide this game that can be taught. And that's really critical. That's, that's where game theory is founded. So no gold stars at the Soul for Why event. No. <laughs> How has your view on the grid changed um, in the last couple of years? Because it seems like to me you're bringing more solver ethos into Solver Why with guys like Matt Hunt, some of your work with mm -hmm. Nick Howard. Nick and I have been great friends actually from the beginning. So I used to consume his videos, I guess, on a Run at Once. And I think it was like, I was at Bay 101 with Christian. So it must have been like... February or March of 2016 and Nick had released a video talking about like how he kind of like fell down the GTO rabbit hole and how debilitating it was to him and how much of a trap it was and just the way he articulated this message of these principles are incredibly important but everybody's kind of getting it wrong because all they care about is the micro and they're not seeing the forest through the trees it just really resonated with me and I was like man this guy gets it I totally am on board with him like you know my background's computer science and math so it's like I understand how solvers from an algorithm standpoint came to be I understand like the quote-unquote thought process in how it solves uh, each and every decision that's infinitely more valuable than actually being able to just pluck out what the strategy is that the machine would implement and then try to randomly apply it in real time my human capacity to recognize patterns in real time is often gonna provide a lot of value and Nick just seemed to like really get that marriage better than I could even articulate. So, you know, I reached out to him, shot him an email, and he was in Vegas at the time. We happened to get lunch and we ended up talking for like three hours. He was shifting hard into just like mass data and effectively just demonstrating through 500 million hands of analysis that nobody's operating at theory optimal. Look, we can see right here versus this bet size that the field overfolds at a massive percentage. And we can just recognize all these patterns that are occurring. What the conversation ensued from there between him and I is this is what good players in the live realm are able to do without the actual mass data proof. We're just able to kind of like see and recognize in real time what the collective pool is doing and implementing. And it makes perfect sense because the less studied each individual is in the pool, the more they're trying to mimic somebody that they consider to be more studied or better than them. So whatever mistakes that studied player is making are just being passed along in some diluted manner to the rest of the pool. And now you can just recognize these patterns. It's like, oh, people are c-betting for third pot way too often on board textures that don't justify it. That kind of whisper down the lane nature of poker where mistakes from the top trickle down to the bottom. And of course, good plays from the top also trickle down to the bottom. And now you're very much into literature and language as well. Uh, is there a term in poker that you feel like we need to create for something that exists but isn't being talked about? Yeah, and I guess like I don't do a good job of it. I hit on this a little bit earlier. I hate the way we've coined GTO because I think it's an insult to what the actual study is. I know I get pitted as the anti-GTO camp a lot, but my principles are very much in game theory. I understand that we're operating in a system of chaos that's ultimately governed by math. And it's very critical to be able to strip out the principles at a baseline, create your foundation, and then work on the nuance from that point forward. And of course, there are gonna be many mistakes made along the way. Uh, my issue is that GTO has been projected as a, as a style. Like it's a stylistic approach, uh, similar to like tag and lag back in the day. And uh, exploitative has been represented as a style. 
And the, the reality is exploitative is a spectrum and GTO is a point. GTO in implementation is one point on the spectrum, right? In a general sense, it's a, it's a study, right? In practice, it's literal achievement of balance. And there's no spectrum to balance, right? Nash equilibrium is a very precise thing that only exists when two points meet at equilibrium and balance, right? So everything that, that flows off of that is the actual spectrum. And it's exploitative in nature. Every single time you are making even one simple tiny decision that strays off of GTO, there's gonna be a butterfly effect that takes place. Like it's just likely that you're gonna make very non-optimal decisions from that point forward. We're just simply in a mimicking process of a very, very, very early science that people project as being already solved. There are so many people who think like poker is ending. And that we're we're on the wave of like you know yeah AI is gonna kick in and within five years no limit hold'em is gonna cease to exist. It's just so crazy in nature because for no limit hold'em to cease to exist at least in the live realm we would have to be somehow like reach the singularity where all of a sudden our brain can now be linked together with AI to a point where we can run just mass data calculations in game in real time and that's just like not probable to happen anytime soon. I would say that if that were to happen, if poker were to die, especially live poker because of AI, it would have to have something to do with like some kind of chip technology where mm -hmm. you're actually able to access all this data live yeah. in game. Live HUDs or, or something where like, you know, we're able to accumulate mass data at a rapid rate and then also be able to run it through these very complex systems that, that we're currently using for solves. And also understand like, where we are now compared to six years ago, it's night and day. This isn't the same game anymore. This isn't the Mike Mattisau, like league that we used to play in where you could just look somebody in the face and say, like, I don't think you got it, buddy, and call, right? Like, there's a lot of calculation taking place. But we haven't even breached multi-way scenarios yet. That's going to throw a big monkey wrench in the wheel whenever people understand that the easiest way to undo a lot of this work is to simply em employ more multi-way scenarios. I think like the next wave for No Limit Hold'em is going to be to adopt the, the short deck structure where everybody antes uh, a half an ante and the button antes a full ante. Everyone is pot committed in some capacity and has the option to call, raise, or fold immediately facing a decision where you're getting nine to one in an eight-handed game under the gun. You know, I was really impressed when I saw one of your recent interviews and you talk about how hard you work as a business person, maybe even harder than you work on your own poker game. But what was the biggest thing you learned in the last couple of years being the founder of Solve for Why about entrepreneurship and startups? It's not even necessarily a lesson. It's just more so the challenge of it all is understanding just like how incredibly critical it becomes to give a hundred at all times. When we first developed this, it was, hey, I have a novel idea. We kind of see this game differently and we've had a lot of success in the live venue. What if we just invite nine people who want to uh, learn from us into this like VIP experience? I was like, you know, we could probably make like 30,000 for an academy. That seems like a lot of money. Like, let's do it. And then we did it and it was just like, okay, like I have an entire vision now and I have this five-year plan and basically like, once that occurs, now you're not giving just 100% to this one-off type thing that you're spending three days on. You're giving 100% 365 and ensuring that like your customers are getting absolutely taken care of to the fullest. You are putting all your time and effort into properly educating the market and putting yourself out there in a way that lowers the, I like refer to it as the pride barrier. Like when I developed this, my mindset was like, I have so many people in mind who have just been 510 grinders for a decade 
whose hourly has been cut in half year after year after year after year. And I imagine that they're probably break even now. I can help these people a lot. Like I can show them a path to move forward and move beyond it and do better. And immediately what I found was a roadblock there. People saw me as their peer, despite the fact that like I was playing higher and having a lot of success. People will always find reasons to kind of like lessen uh, your achievements to get to get back to their level. And that pride barrier was very difficult to break down where it was like, uh, I remember very specifically, there was uh, a kid that I've been playing 510 with since I moved out here in 2007, 2008. And in 2016, I was three years into the big game, having tremendous success. I just final tabled the super high roller bowl, 300K. And this kid was playing 510 with my now manager, Brian, who you know I've been friends with since I was a little kid, whatever. So they're playing 510 together. And this kid that I know uh, that I've been playing since back in the day, he like turns around in the Bellagio, looks at Bobby's room and sees Seaver sitting there. And this is right after he had just like got sucked out on a big pot or lost a big pot or whatever the case may be. And he goes, do you think Seaver would like just teach me how not to lose my stack in those spots? I'm just so sick of losing my stack in those spots. Like, do you think he would teach me that for $20,000? And my friend looks at him and goes, no, but Berkey will for 3K. Uh, and he has an academy going up. And the kid looks him right in the face and goes, I'd rather pay Seaver 30. I get it, right? At the time, I'd literally been on TV maybe twice. I hadn't been qualified to do my job. And I understood that that fell on me. And it still falls on me. Any pushback that we get uh, as far as like disqualifying us because of a hand that I played on TV or an interview that I gave, it's my day in, day out challenge that I have to demonstrate the worth that I can provide to, to my clientele. Otherwise, we just won't have any business and solve why will cease to exist. So it's like this extreme ownership as the, what's the name? Jocko. Jocko says. I love him. Wow, that's really fascinating. I feel like I can see that actually based on this conversation, like that you've transitioned more to owning even more your mistakes as a business person. You just have to, right? Like if you want to maintain your sanity and you want to actually grow both as a human being, as a professional, whatever the case may be, at some point you have to like stop looking to the stars and saying like, why me? Why does this this thing, this person, this uh, hurdle, why does it keep getting in my way? At some point, like all signs point to you. And we're very quick to give ourselves credit when we, when we excel. We should be very critical of ourselves then whenever we fall. Right. It's funny because as a chess player, um, I don't have that same problem because we do have chess rating. So mm -hmm. the pride issue uh, is going to be a little bit hard to uh, fake. Sure. Like you can't say like, oh, yeah, on any given day, I could play like Magnus Carlsen. Right. It's literally impossible. Yeah, there's something very humbling about the way that chess is structured. And I, th I honestly think that maybe that's a big deterrent for a lot of people like getting involved, right? It just seems like you have to have such high qualifications to even meet the barrier of entry. And I fear that poker is shifting that way. The only thing that we have working favorably for us is that luck will forever be present. It's just crazy to think that like there is no achievement that you can have in this game where there won't be an onlooker who kind of tries to strip it away from you and saying like that was just variance. Honestly, I was really lucky to become friends with Jason Mercier like in the in the highest moments of his career because I was young. I was like 29 28 something along those lines maybe even 27 when we first met and i was like just starving for that that spotlight like my recognition of like how good i thought i was and i just wanted to win all the money i wanted all the headlines i wanted all I, you know i wanted to be a force in the community and then i saw jay just like rise to stardom and just like earn every bit of it just no one grinded harder no one won more and i saw the transition happen where it was just like he went from a kid in the spotlight to an adult transitioning into adulting. I was also aging and I had my brushes with success. Once I got behind those glass doors, it was just like, okay, 
this is actually what like making it is not being on the cover of card player it's being surrounded by seven businessmen who respect you or willing to kick around jokes and gamble for houses with you you get there by playing queen five off once in a while once in a while yeah, yeah. thank you so much berkey with the queen five off it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this incredible hand on the grade oh well, thanks for having me if you liked what you heard please subscribe and write a review your subscriptions reviews shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.